Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Scott Tinker to the show. Scott Tinker brings industry, government, academia, and non-governmental organizations together to address major societal challenges in energy, the environment, and the economy. Dr. Tinker is the director of the Bureau of Economic Geology, the state geologist of Texas, and a professor holding the all-day endowed chair in the Jackson School of Geosciences at the University of Texas at Austin. With director Harry Lynch, Tinker co-produced the award-winning documentary films Switch and Switch On, which have been screened in over 50 countries. Dr. Tinker founded the nonprofit Switch Energy Alliance, whose educational materials appear from schools to boardrooms globally. Tinker is the host of PBS Energy Switch, an energy and climate talk show appearing on over 200 PBS stations nationwide, and Earth Date, featured weekly on over 450 public radio stations in all 50 United States. Scott, how are you doing today? Raj, I'm doing great. It's a gorgeous day in Texas, and every day is a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> Scott, before we get into the topic of energy, I'd like to know how your father, you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but I believe your father was a geologist too. So how did he influence you and your career? That's interesting. Uh, that's a question I don't often get asked, but he definitely was a geologist his whole career. And he didn't influence me, or at least he tried not to. So I went off to college <laughs> to do something like a lawyer. And I took an introductory geology class my freshman year and loved it. So I guess resistance was futile. And my oldest son is a geologist as well, so it seems to be. I dare to ask, what did your grandfather do? Well, <laughs> fair enough. He, uh, he actually went to Harvard Divinity and was an Episcopalian minister for many years, but then he left the ministry and lectured for 25 years in the Department of Natural Resources in Michigan. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the bloodline is strong. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's so, fun. So when did your interest in energy begin? Pretty early on. I mean, I went to work actually after uh, undergrad for a year in the oil and gas industry. I went back to grad school and did my master's and came out and worked some more in the oil and gas industry on the exploration side. And this is in the early and mid 80s. And then did a PhD while I was working full time and ended up at a research lab in the industry for a dozen years, which was a lot of fun, building 3D computer models of some of the really early ones, there weren't very many good GUIs. <laughs> Graphical user interfaces didn't exist, uh, user interfaces. Did that for a while and then left as they were closing the research labs in industry. Went down to the University of Texas. And that grew there. I broadened from subsurface oil and gas to all forms of energy. And that's been really 
kind of exciting to dive into the pros and cons of all. And when did you decide the world needed Switch Energy Alliance? Well, I met the brains of this operation, a guy named Harry Lynch, <laughs> who's a documentary filmmaker and a really smart guy, in about 2008. And he was interviewing me for a film he was making on the early Barnett Shale production. And he's made you know, series on mental health and on classical music he still has on PBS and lots of different things, horses and cowboys and all sorts of stuff. But he's a smart guy. So he met me. We interviewed. Afterwards, he said, hey, you know, I like the stuff I've read and you're pretty decent on camera. Have you ever written a book? I said, I'm too lazy. <laughs> he said, well, how about making a movie? <laughs> this was 2008. I said, yeah, you know, what would that cost? And he gave me a number for kind of a decent one, a good one and a great one. I said, let's go make a great one. Of course, the Great Recession hit in 2009. But we did. We traveled around the kind of hand to mouth for a year and a half filming in a dozen countries had a great time and made our first film switch. And how was the movie received? It was received well. <clears throat> it really surprised us. We didn't feature length film and for theaters. So we had a, a theatrical release across the U.S. in 10 cities. And, you know, a couple people came, <laughs> but it got some press release. And I think the only one that was mixed was New York City. who I thought there was too much information in it. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, and we, we laugh, but it got us, uh, that gets you going. And it turns out, <clears throat> unexpected to us a little bit, was educators picked it up, both on college campuses and high schools. They loved it, and they were using it in their classroom. We didn't know until much later and found that out, and it made sense in retrospect. We translated it, got translated in lots of language, subtitled, and I think it ended up playing over 50 countries, and still continues to be. I hear from college professors often they still use that film, which was released in 2012. It was a film on the energy transition. That's a popular thing now, but nobody really knew too much about it back then. And so I can see that a little bit long in the tooth in a couple of places, but it stands the test of time. We, you know, Raj, we were not trying to get go viral or be dramatic or say partial truths in it. We were just trying to tell uh, a pros and cons story about energy, the trade-offs, what each form looks like. And we went there, showed the best forms of energy in the, in the world that we could find and get into. And we got into a bunch of them and some of the pros and cons about each form. And that has stood the test of time because some of those first principles don't really change. So speaking of partial truth, what's the difference between completely factual and factually complete? <laughs> we found that. I, I said that, uh, Joe Manchin's first climate hearing a couple ago. There's a lot of things that get said that are completely factual, a statement or a fact. It's fine. Factually complete means trying to put the whole story together, which is very difficult. Nobody can do it. There's so much in the energy space, the energy and environment, climate space. It's hard, if not impossible, to pull all that together. But at least make an attempt to represent multiple sides of an issue. In other words, not binary, not clean and dirty or good and bad, believer denier. Um, there's trade-offs in these things. And it's, and, it, it, and it's not always easy to understand all of them. They can be somewhat nuanced, but I think it's important for those of us who have that depth of experience and, and knowledge to share different sides 
and perspective so that the listener, whoever that is, a policymaker, regulate a student, uh, an, an industry leader, or just pimp the public can say, oh, oh, I see. It isn't quite as clear as it's being made out to be, depending on what I listen to. So that's been always our goal is factually complete and in as unbiased of a way as possible. And it's not easy. I mean, I have my biases. We all have our biases. And, but I know it's switched. A lot of us don't agree with one another on politically. So I know we're always trying to find, well, what's the, what's the middle ground here? What's it really look like as we think through these things? And that's the, that is a very important thing when we try to adhere. So in traveling across these countries for a year and a half, what, if any, of your own personal perspectives changed? Oh, boy. So many. And I, that's the neat part about science. As you learn, you evolve. Science is a process. It's not an answer. <laughs> so, the process of investigation. And by the way, we these are called, our, our feature-length films were called documentaries of the old school because we didn't write them ahead of time and go out and film a few things to tell the story we already wanted to tell. We actually went out and explored and learned and then spent a year in post-production telling the story that we learned as we were filming. And that includes, I think, uh, understanding the scale of things. I had some thought about scale of energy, but nothing like it really is the growing demand on the demand side for energy. Uh, certainly some of the improvements in the solar and wind technologies keep bringing the cost of those down at the plant gate. And I want to be very clear that. So <laughs> there we go. Completely factual. The cost of solar and wind are now as cheaper, cheaper than natural gas or coal. And that's true in some places at where they're generated. And then learning about, well, what makes that factually complete? You still got to get it from there to the consumer or the end user. To do that with sources that come and go, like the sun and the wind requires a bunch of redundant stuff to sit around like a battery or a gas plant, a load following plant, which makes it expensive. <laughs> so this is, this is, you can be completely factual by saying it's cheaper. And then you can also be completely factual by saying it's more expensive and it just depends on so that, but that perspective of the scale and how those things are evolving, uh, evolved quite a bit. I think what I didn't understand fully, and we didn't understand when we made our second film, was how many people were living without much energy. Well, a billion people with essentially none of modern energy of any kind, and then another four to five billion with various amounts of energy uh, coming and going. And, and I use energy broadly, not just electricity. Some people think electricity. That's that's only a, a quarter of our, but fuels of any kind or modern appliances or conveniences of any kind. So many people in the world living in some level of energy poverty. And that really was something I didn't fully understand until we spent several years doing it. Lots of other ones. So I noticed when I watched Switch On, you were brought to tears in a moment there in Nepal watching a child that had upper respiratory issues and your other travels, how many times were those kind of emotions evoked? Huh. Yeah. Oh, quite a few. I used to try not to actually do that on camera. <laughs> in fact, I didn't know there was a camera on me. And I remember that very specifically in the city Memorial hospital there in Nepal. And we had met kids like that throughout our time filming, especially in Nepal. And then to go there and see them, coming in with these severe diseases and knowing they're going to die. 
several dying every week, moms dying. It just was brutal uh, to witness because it's so solvable. But I had tears. More on the on the energy poverty film switch on than on the first film switch was really what the those of us who have energy uh, and you know you see kids in Colombia that die before they reach adulthood of diarrhea or a tooth infection something that they can't take care of and, and on and on things like that so you know it's it's emotional but the goal is to try to bring that awareness and and address these things. Our goal is to try to inspire an energy-educated future and, and in that inspiration, see solutions. And I'm often brought to tears of joy as well I, uh, by people. I have a student from South Sudan, not mine, but he came up to me after a talk. Akin Tong is his name. And he said, he came to me and said, you know, I made it to the U.S. Remarkable story. Don't have time to tell, but he said, I'd love to have you work with me, mentor me a little bit. And he started a not-for-profit called Seeding Mercy in South Sudan, where he brings solar panels to help run water pumps to lift water to irrigate. And he got the government there to gift him 10,000 acres. They couldn't give any money. And they divided that up into small acreage tracks for farmers who now have solar panels. And I connected him with the CEO of a big solar company that I know. And they put some money into it, and, and you're seeing this micro market emerge and grow in South Sudan with more food production and people able to eat. So that brings to you in a positive way to see that kind of impact start to happen. And it happens in lots of places. It's remarkable the, the resiliency of humans and the human condition, but it's also remarkable, Raj, how little we in the rich world understand what the rest of the world lives like. It, it's just, it's stunning. And, and I'm not saying, oh, you should know better. What I am saying is uh, we need to bring more awareness to that. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, I think one of the ways you did say that is we'll be greened and you'll make it cheap. <laughs> yes, you, you've done your homework. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the great energy ironies, I think. Countries, uh, companies are importing energy from other places and in, and products made from energy and then saying, hey, we're green. There's only 11 states in the United States that produce more energy than they consume. 39 are consumers of energy more than producers and by a lot, some of them. So you're importing these things while somebody else burns the energy or coal or in often cases coal in, the, in Asia who make our stuff and, and emitting CO2 into the atmosphere so that we can be green. It's a great irony, and I'm not sure most of the public thinks about it that way. <laughs> when the Amazon truck shows up at your door with one toothbrush, you know, oh, cool, I got a toothbrush from Amazon. And what did it take to get that toothbrush to you? Think about the energy in that little, in that little supply chain. So it's, it's pretty phenomenal. We have to think more carefully about the whole system, if you will, the life cycle of that whole system and its environmental impact. Well, speaking of thinking about the whole system, perhaps a controversial statement that you made in a couple of different presentations, there is no renewable energy. Care to elaborate? <laughs> yeah, I said that in a TED talk <laughs> to 1,100 <laughs> students, <laughs> and then I ducked. <laughs> I think I said something like, you're not going to like me. 
<laughs> but I had kind of tried to set it up with analogies in, in the food world, you know, the, and, and what that means, the sun and the wind are there, renewable in a sense. The sun comes up daily unless there's clouds and the wind blows, you know, plus or minus. So that's a free source of energy. It turns out oil's there too. It's nature made it and it's free. <laughs> so is natural gas and coal, uh, uranium and thorium. But so nature makes these things, but to collect it and convert it into a useful form. So if I want an ele electron, I want electricity, I have to convert the sun into electricity or the wind. And if I want to put fuel in my car from oil, I have to refine it, drill for it and, and move it and refine it and, and burn it. So all those processes that go from the earth, where everything is either drilled or mined, into my car or, or electrical socket <laughs> takes stuff. Uh, you have to manufacture, mine that stuff and metals and manufacture it to convert and collect. And then, and then the, that stuff wears out. It all wears out. Wind turbine blades wear out, solar panels wear out. You know, we just burn the oil so it wears out completely. Uh, and we do it again. So you, you mine, you manufacture, you dispose of in the, back in the earth. And by the way, we are dumping motors and batteries into landfills. It's, it's fun to think about recycling, but we just don't do it very much because it's expensive. So we do this over and over, and that's not renewable. Not, as a geologist, I don't care about mining. But I've never had a hand off audience, and I often ask, how many think mining is green? And never does a hand go up. And so, well, if mining isn't green, why are we calling things green? Because it takes a tremendous amount of mining to collect sun and wind and make batteries. and of drilling to do oil and gas and mining to make coal and blah, blah, blah. So I think we need to really begin to use specific language. Words really matter here. And people I work with get so frustrated by me with the word renewable. And I say, you mean solar or wind or geothermal or hydro? Or what are we talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No, I really don't. Can you be more specific? Have you, you know, it's kind of like saying, uh, if you use renewable, you might as well use reliable for coal and oil and gas, but who uses that? Nobody. So it's, it's this great challenge of language so that we can understand the difference between the completely factual things and the factually complete components around all this. And I think our young people in the world will solve these great challenges if they have that understanding. But if they do not, if they, if they oversimplify it or are taught things that are just not complete, it'll be hard to solve. So speaking of language, you gave a really good example of how we speak about the levelized cost of energy. Can you share your thoughts regarding that? Yeah, this is a Lazard calculation. Again, a completely factual one that looks at levelizing cost of things at the plant gate, whether it's a natural gas power plant or a coal plant or a wind turbine or a solar panel or a solar farm or a you know solar tower and they try to levelize those those costs lcoe level fair enough and but that often gets quoted and confused with levelized to the consumer and it's not the cost of the consumers are very and we have a big study going on at the bureau now that i started about a year and a half ago trying to look at the consumer cost of electricity solar solar with batteries wind, wind with batteries natural gas to start and then adding things to that are very hard to do. 
very hard to figure all those things. But in a big picture sense, when you look at the price of electricity in Europe, for example, Western Europe, 40, 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour, California, 25, 30 cents, Texas, 12 cents, <laughs> you know, you, you start to see the places with more intermittent sources like the sun and the wind having more expensive electricity to them. And this is public data. It's nothing. It's not judgment. I want to be real. I'm not judging these things. It's just, it's just the physics and the economics. So that number levelized, I think, represents something levelized where and, and to who. And it's really important to begin to define that so that we can go further. I think people are getting a little, uh, let's say, weary of being told things are going to be cheaper and then seeing their power bill <laughs> or told they're going to be cheaper and then seeing the gasoline price at the pump and starting to say, well, it's not cheaper. <laughs> Why do you keep telling me it's going to be cheaper? And finally, some big CEOs, as they continue to ask for more subsidies, but the CEO of Orsted, really, the big wind producer in Europe, said very publicly, consumers need to know they're going to pay more for renewable energy. Full stop. Fair enough. And that may be a choice people make, but they need to know that is going to be there. Well, speaking of choices people make, the concept of equitable energy, what is that? It's not my concept. <laughs> I, can, I can talk about it in, in its various forms, and I've seen a lot of them. I chaired a panel just last week on this subject. So equitable is, is this idea and it's an important idea, by the way, that different people are disadvantaged or advantaged by energy in some fashion. And so why is that? And is that, is that fair or just? Is it equitable? You can parse it into ways and find out why that is. Um, sometimes, for example, big energy facilities are built in communities that can't afford to resist them. <laughs> by suing companies or, or regulators or states and saying, no, not here. They just get built there. Is that equitable? Not really. You could parse it to say, who, when we pay the same price for electricity, which we do, or gasoline, which we do, who does that impact the most? Well, it impacts, because it's the same price, those who make less income pay more proportionally of that income for the same electricity or gasoline. That's called regressive and it's not equitable. <laughs> you know, If I'm paying 20% of my income just to get to work and then I come home and power bill is high because I don't have the insulation levels, et cetera, it's not equitable, it's regressive. And ironically, again, there's tons of <laughs> ironically, some of the more progressive policies, I'm not, a, I'm not political about this stuff, but the ones that push the hardest for those things that are more expensive are the most regressive economic to people who can't afford it. And you're seeing this play out around the world now, even in the rich countries, you know, various forms, the yellow vests back in France or the truckers in Canada. And you're just starting to see it happen where people say, we can't afford this. This is too much. Heat or eat. The Economist put out a piece about a month ago saying that expensive energy likely, and they said likely, killed more people than COVID in Europe. And they had graphs to show why. You go, really? In, in a modern society? Yeah. 
really. And, and so that's, there's just endless examples of what's equitable or just. And, and addressing it then is very difficult. There are lots of schemes to transfer some level of wealth to other people so they can afford their energy or to tax things at the border so that those who are making the CO2 emissions don't get a free ride, even though we want our energy to be cheap and our products to be cheap. There are lots of schemes out there, but none of them are without uh, warts. So I'm happy to talk about that more if that didn't make sense or that's not enough. I, I think it makes good sense. In fact, this weekend I was discussing the recent commitment by the DOE, I think $3 billion partnership with Sanova for solar panels, VPPs essentially, virtual power plants. Mm-hmm. And the conversation was around who's going to carry the burden for those solar or the VPPs. And again, to your point regarding a regressive tax or a regressive program, devil's in the details, nuances, but um, I guess we'll see when it rolls out. Yeah. And I know John Berger well. He's the founder and CEO of Sonova. We have lots of conversations about things. And Ed Sonova is struggling. You know, they're, they're one of the I think it's a very well-run company. He's done a nice job, but the reality of some of these costs are there. And and since that time, the DOE, I think seven hydrogen hubs as part of the so-called IRA for billions of dollars. Um, GTI alone got three of those. The University of Texas is part of one. My organization is a little part of that one. But the numbers are just astounding. The IRA is over a trillion dollars. And we say that like a trillion, one trillion. Well, it's not the one, it's the trillion. <laughs> and, and so I did some work and looked into the, China had something called the Belt and Roads in the last decade or more, where they were investing around the world brilliantly into infrastructure and, and other things, mostly Asia, the Middle East, Africa parts of Eastern Europe, even a little bit, and then essentially earning through lending and, and, and investing in infrastructure, various things that have come back to China, including processing of all these metals that get mined everywhere else, processed in China in order to make solar panels, banks, and batteries. Brilliant. They control now 80% of the world's metals. And that cost about, if I did my math right, about half a trillion dollars. So that's $500 billion, <laughs> okay, $500 billion for all that. And they've accomplished a lot. Our IRA is two times that, a trillion or more. And, and I'm not sure what it's going to end up accomplishing at the end of the day. Some things, but will it accomplish all that China did with half the money? I don't know. And... And we really have to begin to be thoughtful about this because I know it will add another trillion dollars to our deficit and into our debt in this country, in the United States. And, and that debt service is almost to a point now where it's more than military spending, just paying the service on the debt, not paying off the debt. Paying off the interest each year is almost more than military spending. Now. So this is just remarkable. These are remarkable numbers and nobody seems to be talking about it. So speaking about people talking about transition, energy, switch energy alliance, you mentioned the movie. What was the North Star for the organization? 
But what is the North Star for the organization? Our North Star, I formed that after the first film, and several years when Harry and I decided to make the second film on energy. Got back together and said, look, let's do that. And that's when we formed the Switch Energy Alliance. It's a 501c3 with a North Star of energy education to inspire an energy-educated future. And again, we've talked about the objectivity and, and apolitical and trying to keep biases out of just and making it broadly available, free to teachers and educators and stuff. So that's our North Star. And you never get North Star. It's like chasing the end of a rainbow. But I think we're I think we're getting we're making progress on and I see it across the nearly seventy or eighty thousand high school students that use switch classroom every year now and they're close to ten thousand teachers and that's just growing that use it in their AP environmental science classes and other classes. I see it in museums that are running our film. I see it uh, sure in, in industry who's now starting to run our PBS episodes as lunch and learns, these 25 minute episodes on a topic with two guests and they don't agree, but they're really high level and they dive into the topic deeply and you come away going, Oh, I see I've learned more, but I also see why there's different perspectives on I see it in governments and policy makers evolving some of the things they're saying and doing. And when I hear my own words come back to me, not quoted <laughs> or referenced even, but but that's fine. That's a win. <laughs> you know, when you start to see a lots of different people converging here in what I lovingly call the radical middle, uh, this this overlap space between energy, the economy, and the environment, and governments, and academics, and industry, and energy, kind of in the tough overlaps. So we formed SEA, Strategic Alliance, for that purpose, to contribute our little piece through film and curriculum and other means to help the broad audiences get a little more up to speed on these topics. So speaking of your words coming back to you, what's your why? What drives you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll be I'll be 64 next month. And, uh, you know, I think it's if I really had to pick something other than just this work ethic that was jammed into me before I could walk, I think, for better and often worse. It's just this uh, it's when I see lights come on, when I see a student or a professional or a policymaker or somebody I'm working with in an NGO where a light comes on and they say, I never thought about that, which I hear that a lot. Never thought about that. I never, never seen it that way. And they may not be completely happy with it. It might not align with what they were hoping they thought or believed. But when they say that or feel that, and I can see it happening because I watch audiences closely, that drives me. That means we're creating a spark that wasn't there before or in a quest for more information, for knowledge and hopefully for learning, so that we can begin to address these things in a better way. So speaking of a spark or a quest, let's fast forward 10 years from now, 2033, pick your favorite publication, Fast Company, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Switch Energy Alliance. If they were to write a short paragraph or headline regarding the organization, what would you like it to read? They finally kicked the old guy out and there's a bunch of young people running it. <laughs> <laughs> now we're making the assumption you're the old guy. 
I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, boy. Um, what would I like a headline to read? It's interesting. I'm struggling a little bit there because, unfortunately, the media that seems to be more impactful these days is things like we're doing now, a podcast or, or a substack or a film. Okay, Something, what's your TikTok dance? I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. In fact, I, I left Facebook and Instagram not that long ago. I only have an Instagram account or a, <laughs> uh, a uh, LinkedIn account now. So I'm not that guy. But, but again, we don't try to go viral and I not do it that way. So I think it would be in those, in those broader medias, I think for the Switch Energy Alliance would just be acknowledged for having contributed to a more balanced dialogue and shining a light on the global circumstance that would help to have lifted, I mean, here, I'll say maybe it would be Switch Energy Alliance has helped to lift people from poverty and protect the environment. Those are, are two things that I think energy, energy does, lifts people from poverty, including all across the world, so a healthy economy. And then it impacts the environment, no matter what form of energy. So I would like our work to have helped protect that environment better than we do. So those would be the two areas. You have this beautiful diagram, Venn diagram, environment, economy, and energy in one of your presentations. Yes, all of them. <laughs> now, I can't let you go without asking, on your first movie, what was your favorite adventure? I saw you rolling in a helicopter. I saw you going to France and nuclear plants. Which one was your favorite? Oh, boy. So many different experiences film speak you know you mentioned helicopter had two adventures there one was in iceland when we were flying with a camera mount on the nose of the chopper and the geology in iceland is incredible and i i was describing the, the exposed mid-atlantic toward this headless heady power plant geothermal power plant i guess i was doing such a good job of describing it we were quite low that the pilot was looking at it too <laughs> and all of a sudden i say power line pulled up the nose and we did one of these, we didn't flip over, but we did one of these verticals uh -huh. and almost hit some power lines. So we all agreed as he steadied it out that he would fly <laughs> and I would describe it. That was a little moment. And then the other helicopter experience, when we went offshore to look at a big offshore platform, at the time, the deepest water in the world, 8,000 feet of water, we had to do a helicopter underwater escape training at Hewitt. And, and that lasted half a day. We were the only ones in the big pool in Louisiana. This is a funny story. So you do this in stages. You get in your stuff and you get in the chopper and the doors are off and they dunk you and you climb out of the open door. And then you get in and they put the doors on and they dunk you and you open the door and climb out. And then, and then, they, and then they put you in there and I'm skipping some stages, but eventually you end up smacking into the water, flipping upside down, which a chopper would do, unbuckling your buckle, opening the door and swimming out, right? Well, we did this final thing and Harry was right in front of me with a waterproof camera filming right in my face. And we went over and swam out and he came out and he looked at his footage and goes, damn it. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he says, we got to do it again. I said, what? 
because I'm a little claustrophobic. Put me on a cliff, no problem, but a little claustrophobic. And why? And he said, well, when we rotated over, I just rotated with you. So it doesn't look like we rotated. <laughs> so he had to spin the camera the next time as we were rotating. So it looked like I was going upside down. And we got that done, all dressed, and we were leaving Raj. This, and in the pool was our actual crew, about 30 guys. And they were training for real in this huge group hug to stay warm, practicing that. And Harry said, oh, you got to get in there. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not getting in there. I'm done. He goes, no, you have to get in there. I said, I'm not getting in there, Harry. I'm finished. He said, what would it take? Well, my, my son now, who's in his 30s and has a grandson, a senior in high school at the time, and he was a piano player. I said, you come to my house and do a two-camera shoot of him doing a piano recital, and I'll get back in there. <laughs> he said, okay, you'll see a little clip in that film of me in the center of all these guys whispering in my ear, as you might imagine, and not looking happy at all. And I wasn't. <laughs> I was not happy. <laughs> I saw that. So those were those were a couple of fun stories. But no, look, the beauty and the, uh, it's just incredible experience. And I would say our second film, Switch On, on Energy Poverty, even more emotional and moving in a sense, just being with people in Kenya and Ethiopia and Vietnam and Colombia. Nepal and Ecuador, just just being there for enough time to feel just a little teeny bit. But I'll tell you, I always knew I was going to get on an airplane and fly home to a shower, right? And and so this is, I never pretend to understand their lives are like, and there's no way I can. Uh, and that that I think kind of drove me. It was powerful, and I believe Harry felt the same thing. Well, the second movie resonated with me because I actually have family in Kenya, family in India. And so we talk to them quite frequently, you know, situations on the ground, some of the slums that you walk through, Kibera. I've been through those many, many years ago. So um, have a very strong tie to that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you probably know it better than I do, especially with family. It's remarkable, but the spirit of the people, the spirit of people is so positive. It's... Uh, and not in a weird Pollyanna. This is our life. And a little a little advance is a good one. I met with a teacher there randomly in Kibera. And he was a high school teacher. We had a wonderful 30 minutes together. And he had gotten the light bulb in his school. <laughs> so, so he was able to actually teach a little bit better, even during the daytime when it's pretty dark. But uh, it's those little things that they celebrate. It is. So last question, and I usually ask for advice to entrepreneurs or our audience, but people that are perhaps studying energy, thinking about energy in different ways, how would you suggest, what would you suggest some of the questions they might ask as we go through this transition? Yeah, I think it's important to define the term. And to me, we're not really leaving anything behind yet in terms of energy. We're just adding more things. I mean, we've, we consume more hay than we've ever consumed just because there's so many more people. Um, so the transition is really one of energy and then emissions reduction and environmental protection, that, that combination. So the questions to ask, will this, whatever it is, be secure, affordable and reliable to people, energy or not? And if it's going to be not affordable and or not reliable, do they know? Do the people that are going to have this 
thing, this new energy, know that? Um, or can we make it affordable enough? That's question number one. It's an important one, and it helps to, to focus, <laughs> focus the mind. And then the second one, can we do this in a way that impacts the environment less? And the answer is always, almost always, yes, we can, but it's almost always more expensive. So then it becomes an economic trade-off or a cost-benefit analysis, if you will, of what what that looks like, and how do you how do you make that work? Will are the people willing to pay a little bit more to do that? What and by people and the regulatory bodies, the, the policymakers, the the rate payers, and consumers all together. So those are important questions to ask as we go through this transition. And then, of course, another one is. Do I represent the world circumstance? And in the rich world, the answer is no, we don't. We are one to two billion people out of over eight now that represent that. And I think we all need to continue to be aware of and question what that world looks like in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's going to be very different, very different. I saw and have used now made a recent graph of the net goods trade between China and India. And China and India represent one third of the world's population today, just the two countries. And 20 years ago, they were at parity, but now India imports $100 billion worth of stuff per year from China and sends them $10 billion. So it's 10 to 1. And that wow. China has found another market, a very highly populated one. Does China need Europe anymore? Yes, but for how long? <laughs> you know, because the the, the growing population of the world, these 6 billion people that are just starting to come out of energy poverty and get access to goods and services, that's the consuming market. I think we got to become very aware of that as we, we being the, the rich world, think our way through these solvable, but not if we try to fix a point in time today and lock into uh, circumstances that are changing very quickly. I think that's a important set of questions to ask and understand. Scott, I appreciate the question. Then I'm going to end with a quote from one of your presentations that I think is very relevant. The mark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it by Aristotle. And I think you've given us a lot to think about. I appreciate your time today and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Raj, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.